before you guys all take me too seriously. I just needed to confess that I learned how to tie a bow tie yesterday. Uh, and it is hard. It is difficult. Uh, but a worthwhile venture. Uh, if I have not met you, my name is Nathan. I'm the youth minister here. Uh, we've been here for a little over a year now. And we are happy the Sherman family is to report that we still love it here uh, at Desert Springs Church and in Albuquerque. Uh, I'm also very excited to be in this pulpit this morning and then very excited to be teaching from the Old Testament narrative. Next week, our youth ministry is going to begin a semester-long look through the book of Genesis. It's important, the Old Testament narrative. Uh, It's only until we realize the story of how God has covenanted himself and revealed himself to a people that we will fully understand why Jesus came and what he accomplished. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, you are jumping right into the fourth week of a six-week series uh, on Yahweh, or Jehovah, the covenant name of God that God has given himself to Israel. And we've looked at several of the titles or the other adjectives that he puts onto his covenant name of Yahweh. So we've looked at some pretty obscure Hebrew words. Uh, the first week we looked at Yahweh Yira, or Yaira, the Lord provides. And we saw Yahweh Rofeka, the Lord who heals you. And then last week we saw Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Well today the title that Yahweh is given is a Hebrew word that's a little less obscure, and one that you probably all know. Uh, Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. Shalom. Why do we all know this word? We, it's, it's kind of culturally ubiquitous, ubiquitous, isn't it? Like, maybe you have a Jewish friend, at least you've seen the fiddler on the roof, right? Uh, shalom. It's like aloha. It's a hello or a goodbye, a greeting or a farewell. It's the abbreviated or shortened version of the greeting, Shalom Aleichem, where the greeter says, peace unto you, and then the one being greeted then says, Aleichem Shalom, unto you, peace. I read one rabbi explain that there are two stages in this initial greeting of peacemaking. The first stage is where the greeter states that he or she is ready to make unity between the two. And the second person then needs to respond that he or she also desires unity. This shalom that we're talking about indicates a lack of hostility between two people or individuals. But we also hear shalom talked about with like shalom in the Middle East, right? Peace in the Middle East. Uh, and in this sense, just like we use the word peace... Uh, So often in the 60s, well, I didn't, many of you did. Uh, Peace, man. Make love, not war, right? We're talking about warring people, warring nations. So in this word, in this sense, the word carries not just a lack of hostility between individuals, but entire nations, entire people groups. Well, in the Old Testament, we see these kinds of connotations of the lack of hostility between individuals or entire nations, like we tend to use the word, and it's even often sometimes used uh, like a lack of stress on the mind, like we use the phrase, a peace of mind. It's rare, but it's sometimes there in the Old Testament. But shalom, more often, in fact, 65% of the time that it is used, carries a, a deeper meaning, a more of a completeness, a wholeness, a overall successfulness and flourishing. 
And as I was studying all the different ways that shalom is used and its multitudinous meetings, I was, I was diagnosed with a severe case of tired head. Because uh, it, it, there is so much meaning packed into two short syllables. But this is an extremely important word and title that God gives himself. He will reveal himself to be Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. So this morning we're going to look at three elements of that title. The need for peace, the mode or way of peace, and the result of peace. And we're going to spend a good deal of our time primarily in the story of the calling of Gideon found in Judges 6. So if you have a Bible, turn there. Judges, it's the seventh book of the Bible, follows the first five books of the Bible of the Old Testament called the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five and tuke meaning tukes, the five tukes. Um, that was a joke. Uh, and then... Uh, <laughs> And then right after that is Joshua and Judges. So before we get to the need for peace, let's read our text together. Judges 6, starting in verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiazrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in the father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to him under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it still stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the Abiazrites. A little context here. Gideon's a fairly well-known Old Testament character, but I want to briefly catch us up to speed where we are not only in the book of Judges, but in the, where we are in the Old Testament. So let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. Uh, God created the world in perfect shalom. Man has perfect peace and fellowship with God. Man has perfect peace and fellowship with each other. Man is, we could say, flourishing under God's rule, under his reign. But then man sins. Man no longer has shalom 
with God. There is enmity between he and God now. There is shalom with, there is a lack of shalom with each other. There is enmity between man and woman. There is a lack of shalom with the land. They are now struggling to even survive. They are hardly flourishing. And this quickly continues, quickly devolves after Adam and Eve. Uh, One of their sons kills the other. There is such a lack, or there is such hostility between man and man and man against God that God destroys the world by a flood and preserves a family. Then God promises to a man, Abraham, that he will make Abraham into a great nation. He will give that nation a land to live in, and through that nation will bless the entire world. But the nation becomes great, but finds themselves lacking shalom still. They find themselves enslaved in Egypt. Then God provides for his people and leads them out of an exodus, out of Egypt. God then reveals himself to be Yahweh Rophekah, the Lord who heals you. And as Trent showed us two weeks ago, Yahweh is primarily concerned with healing their great and our great spiritual sickness, first and foremost. Yahweh then gives the people a law, the law, And they wander for 40 years before they finally inherit the land that God has promised to Abraham. And they finally, 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 in the book just prior to Judges and Joshua, enter the land where they are finally going to experience shalom with God and shalom with each other. But what happens? We find ourselves in verse 1 of chapter 6. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Judges 6 is the beginning of one of the famous cycles that we see all throughout the book of Judges, that there is idolatry and wickedness in the land, in Israel, and God brings trouble to the Israelites. In this case, in chapter 6, the Midianites, they subject them and are harmful to Israel. So Israel cries out to God. God sends a deliverer or a judge to restore peace. But now that there is finally shalom again in the land, the people become self-reliant. They become idolatrous. They become wicked. So God brings trouble to the land. The people are experiencing subjection and harm. And so they cry out to the Lord and over and over, rinse and repeat throughout the book of Judges. So where we find ourselves here, the people are crying out for help because there is anything but peace in the land. There is anything but shalom. The Midianites are killing everyone. They are stealing all of the Israelites' crops and animals, making the land unlivable. And this is where the angel of the Lord appears to Gideon. In verse 11, threshing out his wheat in a winepress... Perhaps this seems a little out of place, and if so, it's because it is. I didn't know too much about ancient Palestinian wine presses. I'm sure many of you don't, uh, until I started looking at this a little more closely this week. But when I think of wine presses, I think of either two things. I love Lucy, right? Or that crazy uh, YouTube video of the local news anchor that falls out and, like, smashes her face and can't breathe. Uh, Don't watch it. Uh, But while... There still likely would have been like trampling and stomping of grapes in these Palestinian uh, wine presses. They are likely not elevated like many of the ones that we see. They are probably excavated depressions, cut out holes in the ground. One, two of them, in fact, one being a little higher than the other. Uh, So you'd put the grapes 
in this, the higher one, this is where we stomp and trample, and then the juice then flows through a little conduit, filling the bottom one of the juice that is then used to make wine. So this is why Gideon can be described, of, described as hiding from the Midianites, because he is actually under the surface of the ground. But the problem is, to really thresh your wheat, you've got to, you take the wheat, the chaff included, you throw it up in the air, the chaff is the light stuff, it blows away in the wind, and the wheat, the heavy stuff, falls to the ground, that's the stuff that you can use to make bread. There's not any wind underneath the surface of the ground. Uh, Gideon is doing some pretty tedious work, all because if he comes up out of the wine presses, especially to go up into the hills where the wind is really good, uh, the Midianites are going to see him. They're likely going to kill him, and they're going to take his wheat. He is certainly feeling the effects of the lack of shalom in the land. So this is how the angel of the Lord finds him. And the angel says... The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Which, if you think about it, is a really strange way to begin a conversation, right? Gideon's probably doing some tedious wheat work, you know, trying to separate. And then he hears this. He's like, gosh, man, like, uh, hello, or uh, sure as good weather today would have been nice. But no, this is how he starts the conversation. And much has been written about that the angel calls Gideon a mighty man of valor when he seems to be fearfully hiding out and doing some farm work. And perhaps he's prophetically speaking about what Gideon is going to become. Maybe, we're not sure. But what is more surprising about what the angel says is that first part, that the, the Lord, and notice your Bibles probably have the Lord being in all small caps. So it's not saying just some God. But the covenant God of Abraham and Moses, the Lord, Yahweh, is with you. Gideon recognizes the seemingly out-of-placeness of this statement as well. So he seemingly, sarcastically even, replies in verse 13, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, then why then has all this happened? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our Father has recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. He is certainly not with us and certainly not with me, he seems to be saying. But Gideon is like completely oblivious to the first half of chapter 6. That Israel has done great evil in the sight of the Lord. Completely oblivious of that uh, over-repeated theme all throughout Judges. That in those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And certainly completely unaware of the covenant blessings and cursings found in Deuteronomy 28. Go back and read those, and you'll find that this is exactly where God promised Israel would be when they were disobedient and unrepentant. To Gideon, it seems that God is some old deity who may have worked in the past, their fathers, but he doesn't seem to do anything anymore. Perhaps my parents still believe in Yahweh, but I see how the world really is. Belief in God is no longer relevant. I just want to show up without believing anything and him make my life easy whenever I want it to be. Yahweh is so irrelevant to Gideon that, as you'll see, if you keep reading this afternoon in chapter 6, Gideon's family has a personal altar to Baal and an Asherah pole, a pole to the goddess Asherah, in their backyard for everyone to see, a very public idolatry. But the angel of the Lord seemingly ignores this oblivious sarcasm and disrespect. 
And he just keeps talking. He says, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Not only am I with you, you worshiper of Baal, but I will deliver you and your people from the Midianites, even though you have shown no real move towards repentance. My deliverance of you will be an act of total grace, that is, rather than anything that you have done to earn my favor. Then Gideon does his best Moses imitation of quibbling, making excuses. He's like, but how am I going to do this? I'm from the weakest clan of one of the weakest tribes, and I'm the weakest person in my entire family. The angel just is like, do you not hear the words coming out of my mouth? In 16, he's like, but I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Finally, Gideon seems to say, in verse 17 and 18. All right, I get it. You're asking me to do a pretty serious thing, though. You're asking me to leave my family, go fight some pretty scary guys in the Midianites. So before I do that, I'm going to need a sign from you. I'm going to need you, O angel of the Lord, who I have no business even looking at or talking to, but I'm going to go ahead and make some demands to. Uh, I need you to stay here. Don't move. I'm going to go home, and I'm going to bring you something that I think you're really going to like. And it's not explicitly clear, but I think the subtext of the angel's, uh, the angel's speech here in verse 18 is, he's like, all right, I'll stay until you return. He's like exasperated. Quick aside here. The book of Judges, with a few exceptions, is not a collection of men and women that we are to emulate. I, I know our children's ministry doesn't do this, but perhaps you were taught by a felt board to be discerning like Gideon or strong and courageous like Samson. The true hero of the book of Judges, without a doubt, without fail, just like every other book of the Bible, by the way, is Yahweh, is God and God alone. So back to our story of Gideon. Gideon basically goes home and prepares a meal for the gods. This is the kind of sacrifice that he would have regularly put on his altar to Baal. And note that he doesn't just run home and pick out some things out of the pantry. He goes home, he selects a goat, he kills it, he cooks it, and then he makes some unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. So perhaps you're thinking an ephah of flour maybe made like a loaf of bread. An ephah of flour is 22 liters of flour. So he is in the kitchen for hours making hundreds and hundreds of unleavened cakes. And I know that God is outside of time and like an, a, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day and all that, but the angel of the Lord has got to be sitting here for hours checking his clock, his sundial. Like, he's caught up on Twitter. He's played all of his Candy Crush lives a couple times. Like he is had it. He's gone for hours, and finally Gideon comes out with a tray with a goat and hundreds of unleavened cakes, like with his chef's hat disheveled and like flour all over his apron. And the angel doesn't let him say anything. He says, put it down on that rock. Verse 20, take that meat, the unleavened cakes, put them on that rock, pour the broth over them, and blows it up, consumes it with fire. And now... Finally, Gideon gets it. He finally realizes who, he, who God is 
In verse 22, he says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He is like having an Isaiah 6 moment that Isaiah, when he was in the presence of the holiness of God, said, Woe is me. I do not even deserve to be in his presence, much less still remain living. He's even recalling when Yahweh told Moses in Exodus 33, You cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. And here's where we get to our real need for repentance or need for peace. There certainly was a lack of shalom in the land. But Gideon realized now, finally, that his first and greatest need was a religious need for shalom, a need for shalom between man and God. Two weeks ago, Trent showed us that our need for physical healing is but a shadow or an indicator of our need for spiritual healing. Our physical sickness shows our deep spiritual sickness. And I think that we might say the same thing about shalom. The lack of peace in our individual and national relationships points us to our greater lack of peace with God himself. We, like Gideon and the rest of Israel, have done what was right in our own eyes. Our sin, while we don't necessarily have altars to Baal in our backyard— is certainly equal idolatry. We have all sorts of things that we find security in, find identity in, things that we worship that we think will ultimately save us. Things that we pour all kinds of time and money and energy into so that we'll find some level of acceptance or approval. One Old Testament scholar says that the cults of Baal and Asherah were part of a wider fertility religion and that cults connected to fertility We're concerned about securing some stuff for the worshiper. Fertility, so children, yes, but coming with a large family comes large flocks and herds, comes abundant crops, all of which are connected to material prosperity. Is this familiar to anyone here? Familiar to me? Anyone else concerned about the never-ending quest for more things? And a continual quest to find the never-satisfied appetites of uh, these gods. No wonder we don't have peace in our lives because while we worship these false gods of material prosperity, really the God that we're worshiping is ourself. As long as I am happy, as long as I am satisfied, as long as I am noticed by others, then I'll find peace, we tell ourselves. And this is us. Apart from Yahweh, we are Gideon. We are idolaters. We are worshipers of the self. We are cowards. We are doubters. And we are certainly like our first father, Adam, blatantly refusing the shalom and rule of God and all that accompanies it. Right relationships, whole relationships, flourishing. But it's at this moment that Gideon seems to get it. It's when he's in the presence of holiness that he finally understands his sin, his idolatry, his sin, which has constructed a wall and continually repels the shalom of God. He realizes that he is not at peace with Yahweh and he is not safe. His cry is basically, I deserve death, don't kill me. But then surprisingly, or perhaps not surprisingly, if you've followed Yahweh up until this point, we find in verse 23, the Lord says to him, peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon builds an altar there to the Lord, and he calls it, The Lord is Peace, Yahweh, Shalom. And here's where we must get to our second point 
the mode of peace or the way of peace. It looks like God just decides to show grace and mercy, right? Like he just forgives on a whim and it costs him nothing. He just overlooks Gideon's backyard idolatry and just says, peace? That's not quite. Shalom is costly and it always has been. Even before we see the law given and God outlining exactly how the sacrificial system will work in the tabernacle and the temple, we see a bloody, gruesome system that brings peace. You see, our open idolatry, our open rebellion against God deserves his wrath against us. Sin against an infinitely holy God deserves infinitely holy judgment. I don't know if you've been following much in the theological blogosphere recently, but the wrath of God has just popped up as a really, really hot-button issue recently. But this is not a new hot-button issue. The wrath of God has caused squeamishness for centuries. Because this, some say this makes God out to be vengeful, capricious, bloodthirsty, But I think those who are squeamish about God's wrath have tended to minimize two things. First, his holiness. Of course, it would be an overreaction for me to require you to, like, kill a lamb to, like, reconcile between us. Because I am just as much a sinner as you are. I have not created the world in all goodness and mercy. I am not eternal. I am not holy and perfect in love and and patience and kindness. God is not Santa Claus that we are hoping that we can get on the good list, right? He is much, much more, but we tend to make him much, much less. But we also tend to minimize our own sin. We tend to think of our sin as an occasional slip-up or mistake rather than open rebellion against the high king. Our sin is a haughty and blatant altar to Baal for all to see. It's a figurative, but almost nearly literal shaking of the fist to God saying, I will not sit under your rules for me. I will not sit under your shalom. And God will not tolerate this sort of rebellion against his goodness and shalom. And yet, he is Yahweh, shalom. He is the Lord who is peace. Throughout the Old Testament, Yahweh provides a way of peace for his people. In Eden, immediately, right off the bat, he himself covers the sin of Adam and Eve with the skin of a killed other, with the skin of a killed animal. Despite the hostility, Yahweh provides shalom. Ron showed us three weeks ago that God himself provides the ram for sacrifice at Mount Moriah so that Isaac might live rather than be killed. Shalom. In Exodus 12, it is only those who trust in the blood of the spotless lamb which covers them who are spared at Passover. Despite death and destruction all around, it is Yahweh himself providing shalom for his people. And in Leviticus 3, we see outlined the procedure for a peace offering, an offering for shalom, or in this meaning more of a, a, a the shalom meaning more of a fellowship. And it is bloody and gruesome. Go read Leviticus 3. It will make you squirm. This makes us, 21st century Westerners, a little squeamish. But God is showing Israel, and God is showing us, that peace isn't just something that we hope and wish for. 
or that God crosses his fingers and hopes turns out well for us in the end. He is not a beauty pageant contestant saying how much they want world peace without any plan or any means to accomplish it. Peace is actually achieved, but it is achieved through a costly process of sacrifice of one on behalf of the many. The problem for Israel is that they never knew full shalom in the Old Testament, though. Continual and annual peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, an annual day of atonement, these had to continue year after year, always deferring God's judgment like a credit card until the coming of Jesus Christ, who John the Baptist calls the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. The author of Hebrews explains that these repeated and annual Old Covenant sacrifices found their end in the once and for all New Covenant sacrifice at Calvary. And we'll see in just a moment what was actually accomplished in our third point of the result of peace, but what does this all have to do with Gideon? I observed earlier that it looked like God just willy-nilly says peace to Gideon, overlooks his idolatry, but this isn't exactly what happens. And what I'm going to propose to you is that Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, doesn't make his first appearance in our Bibles in a manger in Bethlehem, and nor is he absent from our text in Judges 6. I, along with several, several of our elders, am convinced that the angel of the Lord, who shows up all over the Old Testament, is none other than the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself, who intercedes and mediates between Yahweh and his people. In Exodus 3, it is the angel of the Lord who appears in the burning bush, welcoming Moses into God's holy presence. In Joshua 5, it is the angel of the Lord, the commander of the army of the Lord, that finally welcomes the exiled people into the land. In Daniel 3, it is the angel of the Lord who is in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, saving them from the flames and giving them life. And in Judges 6, if you'll notice, the writer of Judges calls him, he kind of goes back and forth between calling him the angel of the Lord and calling him Yahweh himself, calling him the Lord, calling him Yahweh. This is not just some angel, some messenger, but it is the angel who, despite Gideon's sin idolatry and rebellion, and despite an unworthy sacrifice prepared for the gods, it is through the angel of the Lord that shalom is accomplished between Yahweh and Gideon. Gideon realizes his deserving punishment, but through the mediation of the angel of the Lord, or we might say through Christ alone, does he have peace. This is centuries before the reign of Caesar Augustus. But Gideon has peace through this man who will one day offer himself as a ransom for many. Which gets us into our final point, the results of peace. Trent read from Isaiah 9 last week, and talking about the Lord of hosts. But it's helpful for us this week as well. Isaiah 9, Isaiah prophesies, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And we, of course, read this passage often around Christmas, because these titles find their end in a baby, a child born to us in Bethlehem, the Prince of Peace, 
the prince of Shalom. In, in Luke 2, the angels declare in Bethlehem, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The problem, of course, is that it seems like the description of Jesus in Isaiah 9 isn't quite right. After all, the world that Jesus is born into is far from peaceful. It is not despite Jesus coming, but because, that, because Jesus comes into the world that scores of innocent children are killed by Herod. Just after the angel's proclamation in Luke 2, Simeon declares to Mary that this child, this baby, this prince of peace, is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. This doesn't look like peace. And it doesn't look like he's developed a government of peace that has no end either, does it? I mean, just look at what's happening in Egypt with the systematic burning and killing of Egyptian Christians. By watching the news or reading a history book, it just looks like the results of peace are actually quite minimal or non-existent at all. But if the only kind of shalom Jesus was after was merely ending wars, tyranny, murder, the fact of the matter is he should have taken Satan up on that tempting offer in the wilderness. In Luke chapter 4, Luke writes, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If then, if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. In his book, Tempted and Tried, Russell Moore writes, Think about the implications of this offer. If Jesus had accepted it, Satan would have surrendered his reign of terror. Jesus could have directed the kingdoms of the world however he wanted. No more babies would, have been, would be miscarried. No more women would die in childbirth. Ended immediately would be all human slavery, all genocide, all disease, all poverty, all torture, and all ecological catastrophes. The rows and rows of crosses across the highway of the Roman Empire would suddenly be gone. There would never be a Nero or a Napoleon or a Hitler or a Stalin, or at least you would never hear the infamy of those names. There would be no world of divorce courts and abortion clinics and electric chairs and pornographic images. Whatever is troubling you right now would be gone centuries before you were ever conceived. This sounds like paradise. So why didn't Jesus take Satan up on this offer? And even more shockingly, why would Satan be willing to give that kind of authority and power? Because the kind of world of external shalom, of what we just described, is paradise for Satan. A world while separation and hostility still exist between man and God is his greatest goal. Satan would stop at nothing and offer Jesus everything to prevent him from going to the cross. Because it's at the cross that Jesus will finally destroy the hostility between man and God and establish peace. So when Peter objects to Jesus' telling of his coming death on the cross, how does Jesus respond to him? Get behind me, Satan. I have heard this offer before but you will not prevent my mission of shalom. Without the cross, no one is saved. 
The shalom that was accomplished for us falls under what theologians call the doctrine of the atonement, the appeasement of God's wrath against our sin by the substitution of Jesus' righteous life on our behalf so that we might receive the full benefits of his salvation. Or as Tim Keller helpfully puts it, Jesus lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died so that God could accept us. On the cross, Jesus atoned for the sins of his people just like the rams, the goats, the bulls, and doves had done for millennia. Only this time it was once and for all, final and full. From the Garden of Eden until the time of the Garden of Gethsemane, the forgiveness of sins had been patched along, waiting to be fulfilled at Calvary. So when Jesus says on the cross in his last breath, it is finished, he meant it. The credit card deferrals of partial payments were now paid in full. So this is why it comes as no surprise to us that when Jesus meets his disciples after his resurrection, he says over and over to them, in fact, three times in John 20, he says to them, peace be with you. Shalom is here. Peace is accomplished. It is finished. Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. For those in Christ, we are no longer at odds with God. The enmity that made us enemies with him is no more. The atonement of Christ has brought peace and made us his adopted sons and daughters. But for those in Christ, his blood not only has established peace with our vertical relationship with God, it has also shattered the walls of hostility in our horizontal relationships. In Ephesians 2, Paul is writing specifically about uh, Jew and Gentile. But I think we might be able to draw some conclusions for us in our horizontal relationships in the church as well. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one, in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Church, This is now one body, not divided amongst racial or ethnic or gender or socioeconomic lines, but one body and one spirit called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father over all. Do you hear that? This is one body under one Father. He said our need for peace in our human relationships pointed us to a greater need for shalom in our relationship with the divine. This is true. But we must also look at our vertical peace with God and apply the same, poli- same peace horizontally. If God has done the impossible to bring eternal shalom with himself, then the same shalom must be present amongst his people. If we have been forgiven great and infinite sin by God through Christ, then of course we will forgive relatively minor and finite sin against us. So if there is unreconciliation 
or hostility amongst you, first, revisit the cross. How much have you been forgiven so that you might have peace? How much? Infinite, infinite peace with God. Then, after you've revisited those truths, reconcile. Seek peace with each other. Seek shalom in your relationships because God has bought shalom with you at such great cost to himself. On Wednesday night, we will corporately and horizontally remember and celebrate our peaceful vertical relationship with God. At the Lord's Supper, we remember how those in Christ who were once his enemies are now reconciled to him through his broken body and shed blood. But following Jesus' commands in Matthew 5 and Paul in 1 Corinthians, 1, 1 Corinthians 15, we must first reconcile amongst ourselves because we are of the same body taking of the same loaf, the same body of Christ. So be reconciled. Seek peace because of the peace that you have been given. And do so before Wednesday. Begin pursuing peace before you take together. I love that this text of Yahweh Shalom, the God of peace, followed right after Trent's text from last week, Yahweh Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts. The, war, the Lord of hosts, the warrior king. Jesus is indeed the prince of peace, and he will ultimately bring final peace through the destruction of all sin and evil. I said earlier that the kind of peace that Jesus was after primarily in his first coming was achieved through the atonement, bringing peace with God. But the Isaiah 9 prophecy will, will certainly find its complete fulfillment in his second coming. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. In Revelation 19, Jesus is described as a great warrior consuming all evil in the world, bringing an eternal kingdom of peace. And for those who have entered into this peace treaty with God through Christ, the second coming of Christ is our greatest hope. When King Jesus will finally and fully end all tyranny and war and genocide and slavery and abuse and divorce, all jealousy, hatred, malice, and all forms of idolatry, he will consume. But in the here and now, all of those things still do exist. We get anxious about the future. We, our bodies break down and fail us. So how is it that we find ultimate peace and rest now? After all, in just four short chapters, by Judges 9, Gideon will end up making a golden ceremonial garment that he and everybody else around start to worship He's had a face-to-face -face encounter with the angel of the Lord, and he doesn't find rest in the peace that is shown to him. Perhaps you, even after an encounter with the God of peace, still struggle with finding the peace of God. I'm reminded of an old Martin Lloyd-Jones illustration that many of you have heard me use, but I'm going to use it again. Lloyd-Jones writes, Now think this out. Here is a king... And he goes into battle against an invading army to defend his land. If the king defeats the invading army, he sends back to the capital city messengers, a very happy envoy. He sends back good newsers with his report. They come back and they say, it has been defeated. It's all been done. 
Therefore, respond with joy and now go about your lives. Conduct your lives in this peace which has been achieved for you. But if the invading army breaks through, the king sends back military advisors and says, swordsmen over here and marksmen over here and horsemen over there, we're going to have to fight for our lives. Every other religion sends military advisors to people. Every other religion says, you know, if you want your salvation, you're going to have to fight for your life. Every other religion is sending advice, saying, here are the rites, here are the rituals, here are the laws and regulations. Earthen works over here, marksmen over here, fight for your life. But the Lord of hosts, the warrior king, has already won. The battle is won, and he has won it, and he has brought peace. It is finished. You no longer have to fight for your salvation. You no longer have to win your approval or acceptance. You no longer have to prepare a meal for the gods that you hope God might find acceptable. If you're in Christ, he has provided that meal the meal of bread and wine, body and blood that we remember together this week. If you are full of sickness and pain, rest in the Lord who heals you. Understanding that in this age it is our great spiritual sickness that he primarily heals, but this does not mean that he does not care for the here and now. We saw last week that he is the Lord of hosts, the warrior king, who will finally vanquish all of his enemies and our pain. And certainly, as we'll see in two weeks, he is near to us even now. Therefore, if all of that is true, if it is true, respond with joy and go about your lives. Conduct your lives in this peace which has been achieved for you. But if you have never found rest in this already won peace, I am pleading with you to lay down your sword. There is no amount of fighting that you can do to achieve it. There is no amount of religious fervor or zeal that can bring you shalom. There is no amount of of achievements or accolades or approval that will give you peace. We can convince ourselves, myself included, that the securities and luxuries that we enjoy can provide us some level of peace and comfort. But this is exactly the kind of external shalom that Satan is trying his hardest to convince you is the only kind you need. Be honest with yourself. These false gods are as voracious as and demanding, and ultimately unsatisfying as Baal himself. Worship of yourself is unbelievably insufficient because, let's be honest, you make a very terrible God. And you are not worthy of that worship. So Augustine wisely prayed, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. If God has created us to worship him and find our ultimate peace and rest in him, then it makes total sense that we would not find peace in anything other than the one who has created us. You were created with God and your heart will not find peace until it rests in the work of Christ on your behalf. Only Yahweh Shalom, the God who is peace, can achieve the peace that you are so you've been looking for your whole life, so frantically, so trying to accomplish for yourself. Only the Lord who is peace can give it. So rest in him, the God who is peace. Let's pray. Lord, you are 
the Lord who is our peace, despite our open rebellion, despite our haughty idolatry, you are merciful and gracious, and you have provided peace at great cost to yourself through the final and full sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world on our behalf. So God, we pray for those of us who have believed and trusted in you that we would believe and trust more fully and deeply, that we might find rest in you, that we would realize that we no longer have to fight, but it is one for us. And for those who are here this morning who have never rested in you, and the work of Jesus on their behalf, Lord, we pray that they would lay down their sword, that they would find the peace that they have always been looking for in the person of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Lord, we pray all of this, not for our sake, not that we might have happy and carefree lives, but that you might get great glory through the flourishing of human beings in right and peaceful relationships with each other and with you. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.